I'm not privy exactly to what OLG's numbers are, but it's safe to say that if they were added here, we would certainly be even larger. Sure, we'd only go from 46 to 47 operators, but I would imagine the wagers and the revenue would, would go higher as well. And no matter how you kind of look at this, we are talking about one of the most competitive uh, jurisdictions. And Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gaming News Canada Show podcast presented by our friends at Osler, Hoskin, and Hartford LLP. It is Wednesday, the 19th of July, and I am your host, Steve McAllister. Well, so much of the dog days of summer, we have a very busy episode beginning with the release Wednesday morning of iGaming Ontario's performance market report for the first quarter of 2023-24. Mitch Davidson, the Chief of Staff for iGaming Ontario, will be with us in a second to discuss another strong quarter for the province's regulated sports betting and iGaming industry. Davidson will be followed by FanDuel Canada's brand director, Alana Della Vadova, who will help us tee up the FIFA Women's World Cup Tournament, which begins Thursday in Australia and New Zealand. Last but definitely not least, Jessica Wellman, the editor for SBC Americas, will join us for our Round the Horn segment on what's happening with the gaming industry in the U.S. of A. But first, we welcome back to the show, Mitch Davidson. Hey, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mitch. Listen, before we get into it, Mitch, I'll, I'll just quickly go through the report, just some, some high-level numbers from the release that went out this morning and, and landed in our inbox. $14 billion in, in total wagers for the uh, April to end of June period, $545 million in total gaming revenue, 920,000 active player accounts with an average monthly spend of almost $200. And we now have 46 operators and 71 uh, websites in, in the Ontario marketplace. We'll just start, Mitch, with what stands out to you and the staff at IGO. It's a good news story for us. Uh, it's always good to see the market continue to grow and, and continue to show, show strong figures. Um, one thing I would say is, you know, if you look, look back to Q1 of last year, we had uh, 12 operators on day one, which was fantastic, and 18 operators by the end of Q1. And, and now we've got 46. So it should be really... No surprise to see that the numbers are substantially long, larger year over year compared to what they were in Q1 of last year, right? So uh, the $14,545 uh, in, in GGR, both record quarters for us. And, and we're starting to see the market kind of take shape of this is, this is sort of the foundation. This is a stable um, area. And, and this is kind of the size of what, of what we've seen right now compared to while we were going through those growing phases and having multiple different operators join every sort of quarter, we were getting growing and growing figures as they brought new customer bases over. Uh, but now we're seeing a bit more stabilization. And, and it, it obviously, it's a very strong market. It's a very competitive market. We've got more operators than any other state or province in, in North America. Um, and, you know, no matter how you look at these figures, you're seeing really um, this, this is competitive jurisdiction to be in. And it's, and it's one of the largest iGaming markets in, uh, on the continent, really. Yeah, and as guest mentioned in the report, Mitch, uh, these numbers don't include the numbers from, from the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation. And Andrew Darley from OLG mentioned at the uh, SBC Summer North America back in back in March said if you combine the OLG numbers with the IGO numbers, you, you have one of the uh, top four or five jurisdictions, not just in North America, but, but around around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I'm not privy exactly to what OLG's numbers are, but it's safe to say that if they were added here, we would certainly be even larger. Sure, we'd only go from 46 to 47 operators, but I would imagine the wagers and the revenue would, would go higher as well. And, and it goes to show that no matter how you kind of look at this, we are talking about one of the most competitive uh, jurisdictions. And, you know, I'd also note that we don't include promotional wagering activity in these reports. Some states do in their handle or their GGR, probably more so in handle than GGR, but... We don't include it in, in either figure. So these are true, you know, cash wagers and, and um, total cash revenue generated by operators. And it, it really just goes to show um, that no matter which way you look at it, whether it's second, third, fourth, fifth, maybe we can we can debate back and forth over exactly where we fall. But we are certainly up there. And, and it really just shows to um, the, the interest from players, the, uh, the interest from operators, the interest from the gaming related uh, suppliers and the rest of the gaming community. It really is a strong market. It's a place that continues to grow, and it's got a, a really exciting future ahead of it as well, whether that's OLG's products or our products. But obviously, uh, we got a little bit more insight into ours than theirs right now. You and uh, Martha, Mitch, have both talked about you know giving a, getting a little bit more granular with the data that, that you present in these quarterly reports, and, and uh, you delivered this time in terms of breaking out the uh, both the wagers and gaming revenue and, and just looking quickly and we we also mentioned this in uh in the thursday newsletter 
uh, you know, $27.6 billion in, in wagers on the casino side with $940 million in gaming revenue, uh, sports betting $7 billion in wagers and $433 million in gaming revenue. For, for people, I guess, Mitch, who, who maybe, you know, kind of get excited by sports bet, betting because they're sports fans, those numbers aren't surprising that, that they are tilted so heavily in favor of casino. Yeah, I mean, first it's worth noting that, you know, these figures are, are consistent with publicly reported figures we see in a lot of American states, right, that have casino play and um, sports betting. Obviously, a, a number of states only have sports betting, but for those that have both, you know, this is a very similar breakdown that we see. So, you know, part of it speaks to the availability of casino games. You know, you can log in at any time. You can uh, you can play pretty frequently. Uh, you can also go through large volumes without necessarily losing big volumes, right? So you can have higher handle uh, and lower GGR. We actually see the, the hold percentage on the casino side is a little bit lower than it is on the sports betting side, especially for this quarter. Um, the other the other thing I'd point out is if, you know, you just look at the quarterly figures that we just released, um, the sports betting figures are a little bit lower than they trended for the entirety of the year last year. And, and that's really because sports betting, unlike casino, or at least less so than casino, goes through some seasonality, right? So no NFL um, in this quarter from April to the end of June, uh, less hockey, um, less basketball. Sure, baseball ramps up and, and helps with some of that. But, you know, you're, you're talking about a very different than, say, September, October, November, when sort of all four of the major sports are in full swing. So you do see some of that reflected. And I would just note, you know, the whole percentage for last year uh, and, and the handle and the, and the GGR for sports betting all a little bit higher over the course of the entire year than they were in Q1 of this year. And and that's not really a surprise to us. That's a kind of trend that that we can we we will continue to see likely because of the seasonality of the calendar. So yeah, depending on your your sort of um, uh, involvement in the industry or how long you've been following, you know, the numbers might be a bit surprising that they slant towards casino uh, over sports betting, but but really this is a, a similar trend to what we're seeing in other jurisdictions uh, around North America for sure. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, very brief playoff runs for both the Toronto Maple Leafs and Toronto Raptors, uh, sorry, Leafs and Raps fans, and uh, no, uh, no postseason for the Ottawa Senators. That that, that wouldn't help the uh, the cause either. As it relates to sports betting. Yeah, it, it very well could. It's also you know uh, part of it's the the types of operators that we have, right? So one of the questions that I kind of see percolating, or or I'm likely going to get in the next couple of days, is you know it's really great that you release the segmentation uh, data now, but why not earlier? And you know if we would have done this in Q1, we may not have had every poker operator or or not. We certainly didn't have every op operator uh, in the market. And so we wanted to wait until we knew that we had uh, that onboarding had sort of slowed down. We had a, a good stable base so that we were releasing figures that we knew had some consistency and would have some life to them. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're really seeing we do have operators that are casino only. We have operators that are sportsbook only. We have operators that primarily focus on poker. And so the, the types of companies that you have in the space also help determine what that um what that activity looks like in each of those uh, quadrants. And so, you know, that's something that we're, we're seeing come to fruition here with these, uh, with these figures today. Hey Mitch, I wouldn't mind going back just quickly on the uh, Ontario's place globally in, the, in gaming, just because uh, we reached out to a lot of different folks today, the Canadian gaming association, the attorney general's office, um, a couple of other people as well. And almost to a person that they, they, they look at, they refer to the economic development and the economic opportunities that have been realized with the gaming industry in, in this uh, province. And I think that again, speaks to just not what's going on in Ontario, but to Ontario's place globally and the reputation that the province now has as a regulated uh, gaming business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to us, these these data figures are the first part of that conversation. You know, I always kind of like to think if I were in a, a gaming boardroom somewhere and somebody said, you got to invest in Ontario, it's the jurisdiction to be in. The first question I'd ask is, OK, how big is it or, you know, why? Um, these are the, the sort of foundational figures that you need to know in order to make any investments here. Uh, you're not going to come to this province and make an investment in this market unless you know how big it is, unless you know the, uh, the sort of the dynamics of what customers are playing, what customers are not playing. So you can figure out where your competitive opportunities lay. And, and you know, we talked about the Deloitte report that we, uh, we released last time, which is, you know, still on our website if you want to check it out. But we talked about that at the Canadian Gaming Summit. We're talking about thousands of jobs. We're talking about um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in GDP generated for not just the province, but the country as a whole. And, 
you know, there really is an exciting opportunity here. And when we release these figures and show the size of this market, the strength of the market, the consistency of the market, even though it has only been five quarters, it really does help companies say, not only is this a place that I need to operate in, this is a place I physically need to be. And so, you know, we really see this as uh, part and parcel with the economic development conversation. It really is two sides of the same coin to us. Final question, Mitch. The report's out now. What do you and Martha and the staff do for the rest of the summer? Well, I, I would say uh, they deserve some, some time off, especially, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about it a bit prior to this recording. Just, you know, the Market Insights team, our team at IGO, turning these reports around as quickly as, as they have now been doing, it's, it's really... Uh, an impressive feat and and you you know we've got uh, so many different operators and so many different files coming in to put this all together this quickly uh it, it really deserves a shout out and and i would just say that um they they deserve an opportunity to to um to take a, a well-deserved vacation but you know the work never stops uh to be honest this industry is so fast moving there's so much going on that um we we are always going to have more coming to our desk but really what's what's exciting about this for us is we know that now um, we've seen these these numbers continue to grow. They're heading in the right direction. Um, there's stability here. There, there really is strength in this market. And, and it allows us and affords us the opportunity to, to go back and work on some, some more internal things, to, to put some uh, thought into issues that we see the public raise, that operators raise with us, and just to, to start to create an even better gaming market. You know, I, I've always kind of said to you and others in the, in the media that we definitely, and, and government credit here to our government partners, both the regulator and the ministry and others is we got the foundation right. You know, I, I talked about things like um, allowing casino, not just uh, sports betting, the, the lack of tethering or land-based requirements, you know, no, no artificial cap on licenses. If you want to compete and you meet the rules, you can in Ontario. Uh, we got the basics right. We built the foundation correctly. We've got to build the rest of the house. So there's more to do here. There's a lot of internal work. You know, we need to uh, we need to become more efficient. We need to become leaner. These are all things that we've got to work on. And knowing that we've got a, a bit of a stable base here, customers clearly seem to be enjoying themselves and interacting with the products consistently. Operators are, are um, you know, coming to Ontario, continuing to come to Ontario and staying here. Uh, it allows us an opportunity to really focus on some of those other things that might be a bit more behind the scenes, uh, but really are important. So uh, looking forward to, to sticking our teeth into some of that stuff. And I'm sure we'll have more to say about all that soon, but uh, really it's, it, uh, it's nothing but help for us right now, which is which is great. Mitch Davidson is the chief of staff for iGaming Ontario. Mitch, we're, we're going to try really hard not to bother you for the rest of this month and for the entire month of August. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer, and uh, we always appreciate you joining us here. Yeah, and, and congrats on putting out the you know the article that said we we had no news, and then you got news the next day. So I feel like uh, you know you got the the classic announcers jinx going. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll watch for uh, for the next time you do that. And I'm sure we'll have something to to tell you the next day. But uh, appreciate the time, Steve. Always uh, always a pleasure coming on. Thanks, Mitch. Next next coffee on me. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tom. We're really, really pleased to be joined now by uh, Alana Della Vadova, the Director of Branding for FanDuel Canada, who's making her maiden appearance on the Gaming News Canada show. Uh, Alana, so great to have you with us. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. And as an avid listener, very excited to be chatting with you. And it's, it's funny, Alana, you know, we're talking off, uh, off camera, off audio about, <laughs> uh, about a, a relatively quiet summer. But the reason why we want to get you on the podcast is... Um, Really, the tentpole sporting event of the summer, the uh, the FIFA Women's World Cup starts on on Thursday. Uh, Canada opens against the Nigerians on the opening day of the tournament. Uh, Bev Priestman's squad is in a really really difficult group with Nigerians, Ireland, yeah. and Australia. Um, you know, Canada is the reigning Canadian champion. There, there, I think there's a feeling just following some of the coverage on on TSN, especially over the past uh, the past three or four days as they preview the tournament. Um, there's a feeling that maybe the Canadians are being underestimated a little bit. Certainly at FanDuel, they're, uh, they're a long shot right now at, at plus uh, 3,400. But yeah. I, I, I certainly think, Alana, in our, our country, there is a lot of excitement about a team that, uh, you know, still has uh, kind of the old superstars like Christine Sinclair uh, coming off an Olympic gold medal. And then, and then some of the young players who've come through the system and are now stars with the national team. 
No, we're we're super excited. And I think it's such an amazing time for women's sports as well in general. Um, just there's so much hype around soccer and the new leagues that are starting up and the NSWL that just the heightened you know, anticipation for this World Cup, I think, is sweltering and the great momentum that we've seen. So, I mean, around FanDuel, although it's not maybe priced favorably, we're very, very excited for for our Canadian national team. And and essentially what we're most proud of, too, just to, to kind of get right into it, is that we'll have full market offerings on FIFA World Cup for the women in comparison to the men. So we have very much taken an apples to apples approach, even in terms of live betting and ensured that it's an even playing field and we're offering all of the same props SGPs in live betting that you'd see at the men's world cup as, as far as the women's. Um, so we're, we're really happy to have made that happen and our traders work super hard um, even across the globe with our Dublin traders to really put that infrastructure in place. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of chatter and there's already people placing their uh, anecdotal bets against each other in the office. To that to that point, Atlanta. You know, one thing we've I've, I've heard at conferences this year with uh, when you see various executives from sport leagues talk about sports betting and kind of increasing that fan engagement. Um, you know, something that doesn't get talked about a lot is just having something like just going through FanDuel and, and the World Cup offering before we uh, we hopped on this interview and and looking at the players listed. Uh, you know, the goals the goal scoring props. I think just things like that, they, they serve a purpose in highlighting and promoting the women playing soccer around the world right now. No, and that's exactly our strategy with TSN is really highlighting storylines. There's such amazing female players that I, you know, frankly, don't, I don't think get their stories told as loudly. So having these props, getting people more engaged, we're also looking at, you know, foul props and other interesting ways to tell other uh, compelling stories. So that's really our approach and, and TSN's approach is spotlighting these star players and ensuring they get their time in the sun. Um, and then hopefully that just, you know, creates a wave and rolls into just more conversation and more engagement, both from male and female um, fans. Yeah, FanDuel has been, uh, when you talk about women's sports and women in sports land, I, I think FanDuel mm -hmm. really emerged as a leader, um, especially since the Ontario market opened about 16 months ago. And you look at uh, Amy Howell's been an incredible, the CEO of yeah. FanDuel has been a loud advocate for, for women. Um, I think, you know, looking at TSN's coverage, and, and again, we're, you know, we're sometimes, we're, we're critical of TSN and, and other areas, but, uh, you know, they deserve full marks for, for women's, uh, women's sporting events and, and having women reflected in the broadcast. And you look at the lineup of talent for, for this World Cup and, you know, Lindsay Hamilton, who's going to be the on-location yeah. host, and Laura Dykin and Re Regan Subban, and I know Regan's also doing some setting the stage segments of FanDuel sponsors. Uh, Claire Rustad, who I think I think Claire's not not just a brilliant soccer commentator, mm -hmm. I think she's one of the shining lights in uh, Canadian sports broadcasting right now. But there's a very strong female presence on on these broadcasts, and I, I would assume that's a that's a particular point of pride for FanDuel and its relationship with with TSN. No, very much so, and you know, hats off to TSN because they always find ways to spotlight women and work collaboratively with us to say, hey, you know, here's an up and comer too that could potentially be at bar down in their newsroom or, you know, just on social. How do we kind of foster opportunities for more women on broadcast as well, which FanDuel, you know, is, is a huge proponent of. So we're super proud of that relationship and super proud of the women we've been able to spotlight, like the Megan Shakas, like Takia on, on NFL primetime and whatnot. So we're always looking for ways to to further that platform for women. But yeah, I would completely agree. It was hats off to TSN with regards to the lineup that they have chosen for this. Um, and it shows, it pays off. Uh, we have some data to support, you know, not not to compare genders, but that the females are breaking through and they're seen as, as strong betting advocates and they know their stuff and they're educated. And then that hopefully just makes other women more comfortable to kind of come into into the iGaming world and participate in a way that they historically haven't or may have not have felt welcome to. How much, Alana, how much of, uh, you know, the fact that these games, the time difference with uh, with the tournament being played in Australia and New Zealand, 
how much of an impact will that what will that have on on betting especially we know now that there's a real uh people love to lean into in-game betting and, and we are going to have some strange uh time slots for for these games is that is that something that you you have to factor in the way you promote uh promote your coverage and, and the product that you're going to present during the tournament 100%. Yeah, the timing always is a little bit of a strain. But when we look at our data, too, and the number of fans that are participating in pre-live games, um, you know, we can't negate the fact that people are still going to be betting prior to the times and not necessarily always waking up at 6am to participate. But that's when, you know, the power of social media and other avenues come into play. It's not just a broadcast sport at this rate. You know, how are we engaging people across Instagram and TikTok and radio and whatnot and getting everyone prepared for for the next game. And and we're, you know, very much focused on on that and ensuring that there's full coverage spanning not only across the TSN broadcast, but the TSN ecosystem on Overdrive, who we're partnered with that has a huge listenership. How do we disseminate content through there? So yeah, to- totally hear you that it is a little bit tough with the timing, but we've managed to to mitigate and just ensure that this World Cup is always remaining top of mind, and there's other ways to bet if if you're not waking up, uh, if you're not an early bird and are doing it live. Yeah, and I think too you get if you get the excitement of Canada happens to to knock off Nigeria tomorrow night, and I think that's a, or Thursday night. That's a ten thirty, I think ten thirty Eastern time sure. start. Yeah. Um, so Canada wins that game, you start to get get some momentum. I think that has a trickle down effect, not only for media coverage, but again, for FanDuel world, will all of a sudden, you know, Christine okay. becomes a more attractive, uh, uh, you know, a, bit, a little bit more attractive if she scores a goal in the first game. And then so play, people look to place a prop bet on, on Sinclair to be, yep. to be the top goal scorer, win the golden boot in the tournament. No, no, totally. So I, I think people are just excited. I, I think it's, uh, we're even talking about some things around the offices or whatever we could do to, you know, get more people waking up early in the morning to maybe watch or put it on while they're working and just engage in the sport. So um, it's really a 360 approach with regards to thinking about the timing of it and, and how we disseminate across the, the other hours when there's no sport sporting event on. Well, I do see the Ontario, the, the province gave the uh, the green light this week to, to serve alcohol at seven o'clock in the morning. So in, in, you know, in the interest of multitasking, I mean, have, you know, crack open a beer at 7 a.m. and open up your uh, your sports book app, right? Well, I don't know if you're going to be cracking a beer and open up your sports book app. I think that we need to keep those things mutually exclusive. But uh, I can appreciate the sentiment of, of maybe having a little Caesar in the morning while you're watching a game. <laughs> uh, just going back to the, the social media aspect for a second. I know that's one thing that, that FanDuel is going to do with this World Cup um, coverage or, or um, activation is, is lean heavily into the digital advertising side of it. Yeah, very much so. So outside of TSN, we'll have a full-fledged marketing campaign across, you know, paid media and social. We'll be putting up our markets, you know, analyzing props, working with some influencers for picks and and really merchandising within our app to ensure this tournament's always up front and center. So it's really a, a big cohesive approach on broadcast, off broadcast, and with multiple partners to, to bring this to life. So, you know, as mentioned off the hop, we're treating this exactly the same way we treat the men's tournament. Everyone's getting equal amount of media weight with regards to the assets we put out and equal amount of effort and support from our team internally um, to ensure it's as successful as it can be and invite more fans to engage those who have maybe not thought of, of betting the, the Women's World Cup, you know, to come in and understand the same kind of betting behavior and structure still applies and make it easier for them. Hey, Lan, I've had a chance to interview Connor Murray a couple of times now. Connor was on a panel at the Canadian Gaming Summit last month. We've, we've had him on the podcast. Um, I just wanted to begin to explain to our, our listeners a little bit about the role of a brand director and, and you know, just your role with, with an event like the Women's World Cup and also in the, in the relationship with TSN, which has been such an important partnership for FanDuel in the first year plus of this market in Ontario. No, I'm not sure if I'm able to fill Connor's shoes. Uh, he plays a, a big role, and we're, we're all uh, very proud of Connor. We all love working with him. But, uh, yeah, from a brand perspective, so essentially my role is is really storytelling, how we bring to life our product that in a way that engages with 
consumers um, and localizes. It's super important that you know localization and regionality plays a role with regards to how people interact with brands. So that's really what I try to do is is connect FanDuel to the market in a way that they know and understand and through their passion points of, of sports and quite frankly, even off sport on the casino side. Um, so that's really what we try to do there as it pertains to TSN. Um, my role is really to work collaboratively with them and as well as with my team to bring to life our integration. So it's very much a direct line between us and TSN, our traders, uh, people on the media team. It is really, really um, a, a big hand-holding moment with regards to, okay, what are our objectives from a business standpoint, of course, but how are we truly connecting and enhancing the fan experience and how are we doing that in a meaningful way? And we tend to take the approach that not everyone necessarily is going to bet on sports, but how are we at FanDuel still providing value that even if you're not going to take the information we give you and go place a prop bet, you can you know hang out with your buddies at the pub and have a really interesting data point around sports that was provided to you um, by our brand. So we find those connections just as meaningful as well, that we're just in the zeitgeist of sports fandom um, with a role of betting. But hopefully, you know, that kind of manifests itself outside of betting as well. Yeah, and I think that's something. And again, we've you know we've been pretty. We've talked about this in the newsletter on on the podcast, the conferences. Is that uh, I think the FanDuel TSM relationship so far has been a really good example of how you can successfully integrate sports media with uh, with sports betting content. Uh, mm-hmm. Big and shake shake is about the number of segments during the NHL season. Yep. I, I, added value to, to the hockey broadcast. And I, I'm certainly interested in seeing how FanDuel and TSN do that during during the Women's World Cup. But but you're right. It's kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. It's, it's a typical, you know, duck swimming on, on the water where it's yeah. calm on the top and there's, there's feet paddling furiously below. And uh, I think it's, you know, I, I, I think it's, the more information a broadcaster can get, the better and getting information from traders. And we, we have a chance here to talk to some of those traders. Uh, I think that information can be used to get not just necessarily for sports betters, but for the sports fan, there's added value there. Very much so. Very much so. And, um, you know, it just with, with our traders specifically too, they're so fantastic at their job that they're able to uncover so many different data points. And as you think of sports betting in the context of being social and developing camaraderie, there's there's all of these different analysts that we can do to show that, you know, you're not alone in your sports fandom. There's people betting like you. There's people cheering for your team. So it's really uncovering those data points and telling those stories. So fans feel as a collective, which is always a nice feeling to have uh, others cheering for the same team as you. I think fans like to be smarter too. And they, they love the yeah. fact that they're loaded with more information when they go out to the bar with their buddies or sitting at the patio on at the golf course on a, on a Saturday night in the summer that they, it's great that they have more information and, and they can talk like they're an authority. It's so true. Everybody wants to be an expert. Everyone wants to showcase that their bet won, no matter, you know, the $1 bet to the $100 bet. It kind of validates you as a fan and validates you, of your knowledge. And, and that's what I think also brings the fun in it too. everyone, you know, has those conversations of, of which team is better, which player is better and Vandal's there to support those validations. So that's how we, uh, we approach it. Alana Della Vadova is the director of brand for FanDuel Canada. Alana, this was uh, long overdue getting you on the, the podcast. I, I, I know that, uh, you know, we have seen your name pop up on the LinkedIn audio being, being in those rooms on, uh, on t- uh, Thursday afternoons, but it's uh, it's great to actually get you here uh, talking to us, and and uh, hopefully this isn't your last appearance on the Gaming News Canada show. Would love to be back. Appreciate the time. A word from our sponsor. The Gaming News Canada show is presented by Osler, Hoskin, and Harcourt LLP. Osler's gaming practice has the insight needed to help clients navigate the complex and evolving landscape of the gaming industry. Osler's position as a trusted advisor in the gaming industry has been built over years of service to operators, suppliers, and gaming authorities. Visit osler.com slash gaming for more information. That's O-S-L-E-R dot com forward slash gaming. Now back to the show. 
we're delighted to bring back to the show the hardworking, much traveled editor in chief of SBC Americas, Jessica Wellman. And uh, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. I, I assume that you probably have finally made it back home safely after being on the road again last week. Yes, I made it back on Saturday. Was I? I had that moment where I was supposed to travel home Sunday and thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to change my flight and get home a whole day early and get caught up. And then just through a comedy of errors, I ended up, instead of spending Saturday night in Denver, spending Saturday night in Cincinnati between uh, layover delays, problems at the airport, and then the interstate being shut down, where that was my, my attempt to get that last leg back to Kentucky just blew up in my face. If I if I remember correctly, you had a similar planes, trains, and automobile escapade with with the Canadian Gaming Summit last last month as well. Yeah, uh, Toronto. It took me many hours to get you know somewhere that is in my time zone. It's it's not that far from Kentucky, but I think everybody lately in the U.S. has their their airfare horror stories. Um, it's just not it's not the friendliest time to fly these days. It's difficult, whatever airline you're on. It seems like. Listen, well, as always, we appreciate having you on. Um, we want to, we, as I said, we want to kind of cover a lot of topics yeah. while we have you in a fairly short window. So let, let's just start about your trip last week to Colorado for the uh, National Council of Legislators from Gaming States Conference. And uh, again, we we need to find some we need to find some acronyms for some of these uh, some of these groups. Well, you know what? It is it is conversationally known as Nickel Geese, which oh, is actually does roll off the tongue. Uh, I don't think it's one that they made that uh, acronym on purpose. But this was my first Nickel Geese. Actually, I I thought about going. They they meet twice a year. They have a summer meeting and a winter meeting. And what happened was, you know, the winter meeting, all of this news kind of broke out of that conference. And I said, oh, gosh, I need to um, make an effort to be there for this next this next event. So went to attend. It's if you're looking for a conference that has a really high concentration of regulators, lawmakers, government affairs people, a lot of RG people, it was very specifically catered to that set. And set the stage a bit about what to expect as we, you know, winding down, not a lot of legislators still running here in 2023 in the U.S., but what to expect gearing up for 2024. It just, uh, you know, as a journalist, Jess, you, we, we talk on this show about all the conferences that, that there are. And uh, Amanda Brewer and I were speaking yesterday about a little bit. We're talking about G2E in October and SBC Summit Barcelona in September. Uh, you know, we've seen an awful lot of conferences so far in 2023. As a journalist, how do you how do you pick and choose uh, where and when you go? Well, my very unbiased take is I go to all the SBC ones because they are the best. Um, you know what? I the two that I went to G2A, I think, is one that as an American, you just have to go to every year. Uh, it's important. It's a can't miss one. The two that I went out of my way and asked to go to, I went out of my way and asked to go to because I felt like it was a different set of people than you necessarily see at your standard conference. Like I said, Nickel Geese is a ton of lawmakers. So getting to speak with key people putting forth measures in Connecticut, Georgia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, the opportunity to do that, I think makes Nickel Geese a little bit different. It's a smaller conference, I think maybe 300 people. The other one that I went to actually only happens once every three years, and that was the UNLB Conference on Gambling and Risk-Taking. Same thing. I wanted to go there because it was very focused on more academic issues around gambling. So you're getting clinicians, you're getting people on the ground doing RG stuff. That I think, you know, from the media side of things, I want to be meeting the people that I haven't met at our conferences. And we get a ton of great people, but I think the more specified conferences of these other ones just make them more valuable and, and worth my time to go to. Right. Right. That's great. That's great advice. Um, I want to shift gears and talk about a couple of uh, states in your country, Ohio, which is uh, a new market. Um, a lot of scuttlebutt over the past two to three weeks that the regulators there want to double the tax rate from from 10% to 20%, and I, I believe 20% is what we have here in Ontario for regulated sports betting right now. But there seems to be some pushback from from operators. What, what can you tell us about what's going on in the Buckeye State? 
So what happened was basically, I think Governor Mike DeWine saw the first month of numbers out of Ohio, which was a little over a billion in handle. As someone who grew up very close to Ohio and is there with regularity, the success of sports betting there is not surprising. It is about the most sports obsessed state you can come up with across every sport. They're not just a one sport kind of state. So he sees these numbers and thinks, well, why aren't we making more money for the state out of this? And says, well, we should be doubling the tax rate on this. As part of the budget negotiations, for those who don't really follow U.S. state politics, I assume on your Canadian show, that's not that many people, you have to pass this budget bill every year. You know, you don't pass, people don't get paid. So it's these kinds of must-move pieces of legislation where you do a lot of horse trading. And in that... Um, the Senate had agreed to it, the House had scrapped it, and then in the compromise budget, that bump to 20% made it back in. It made it back in. The bill passed on June 30th. The tax rate goes effective, went effective actually, July 1st. So it is doubling the tax rate. Ohio is a state where you do not get to deduct promotional credit from your revenue. So it's comparable to what Massachusetts does. Massachusetts is the same 20% with no promo credit deductions. Um, operators are not thrilled about this. Uh, it's gone into effect. There's nothing to be done about it now. And I guess while you can argue that Tennessee was kind of the first state to go back and retrofit its tax structure in that they moved over from taxing revenue to taxing handle, that it's not quite apples to apples, but by and large, it'll be close to a wash. This is a very clearly demarcated doubling of cost of operation for Ohio operators. And at Nickel Geese, uh, Tipico had a keynote, the Stephen Cromboltz, I believe is his name, hopefully I got that exactly right, gave a great uh, speech and explanation that that is, a, while they are a huge operator in Europe, that's a small U.S. operator who said, I want to go into Ohio because I think it's affordable. I think it's worth the market access cost to go in there. I think it, you know, these given circumstances make it worthwhile. And then less than six months in, you've gone and completely changed how this goes, that that change, FanDuel can weather that change, DraftKings can weather that change, but these smaller books can't necessarily weather that change. And in a state like Ohio, where you have a lot of small Ohio operators that launched in that state, those are the people that aren't going to be able to pay those taxes at the end of the day and are going to struggle to keep open that you're arguably shooting yourself in the foot. Fiscal note on it from Ohio suggested that it would be 100 to 130 million more in tax dollars annually. I don't think that they're necessarily realizing the natural condensation of um, the market that we're having right now, that people are dropping out, and that the more expensive you make it to operate in Ohio, the less you're going to see promotional credits and offers that drive this handle and bottom line. And as part of that too, Jess, that uh, that some of these operators could just pull up stakes and go to other jurisdictions, and if they if that tax rate is so onerous that it just doesn't make sense to do business there. I mean, that is the idea. I don't know if they could go to other states. To be honest, you know, you look at Ohio. I think off the top of my head, it's like eighteen, nineteen operators. They have some like Bet Jack, Miami Valley Gaming. Those are very specifically Ohio kinds of brands that they would just close up shop. They just wouldn't exist anymore. The kind of boogeyman that operators throw out is that we will have to make our odds more uh, unfavorable for betters at the end of the day. You know, instead of minus 110 odds, eventually we'll have to do minus 115 odds. That threat gets put out there. I go and play poker in Cincinnati every week. So I see the Hard Rock Cincinnati lines. Those lines aren't changing. If in New York you have 51% tax rate, you're still getting minus 110 lines from operators. I don't think that's the way it's going to, to play out. I think what you'll see, though, is deposit bonus, odds boost, promotional offers, things like that will dissipate and dry up much faster than they would if you had a more sustainable tax setup. Right. Uh, let's switch gears. The other state I want to talk to you about is, is Florida. And and again, I'll, I'll probably need you to, to give the uh, to give the Florida betting landscape 101 story for us. But I guess a little bit complicated because of what 
in Canada, we refer to as indigenous communities are still referred to as, as tribes and in the United States. But uh, the door does seem to have been open now for, for legal sports betting to come to Florida. And, uh, and, and that obviously is a, is a big story. And we've been talking for two years now when we look to our, our neighbors to the south at, at Florida and, and California and, and Texas and people kind of uh, rubbing their hands and, and you know, look, licking their lips and looking forward to these states opening. All right. So I will preface this with I am not a lawyer and I will do my very best on this because it's complicated. And conversations I had at Nickel G's, it's not this slam dunk. OK, great. Sports betting's fine in Florida now ruling that some people are making it out to be. It, it is a bit more complicated for the background. The Seminole tribe, which owns the Hard Rock brand, is the tribe in Florida that did a compact with the state to allow sports betting. Under the nature of that compact, they basically said that because the servers for these sports books would be on tribal lands in the mind of the state, that was where the transaction of the actual gambling was taking place so that if you're at you know Disney World or Miami Beach or somewhere else on your phone, that isn't dictating where the actual sports bus taking place. West Flagler and Associates, which is um, racetrack in Florida, challenged this legally and it made it up to the circuit court, which recently issued a ruling uh, kind of overturning the lower court's determination. The lower court said, listen, the server is not dictating this. You're talking about gaming that expands beyond the tribe and the compact and onto commercial lands. You really can't do this. This compact isn't valid. And the Department of the Interior shouldn't have signed off on it. The circuit court has said, if the Department of the Interior wants to sign off on it, that's fine. And if that's the nature of the compact, that's fine. But the nature of the compact actually only really talks about what's happening on tribal lands. And if the if West Flagler and Associates wants to challenge whether this compact violates commercial casino law and what exists in Florida, they would have to take that up in the state of Florida, not with the Department of the Interior. So right now, West Flager and Associates essentially has to decide, do we appeal this case one level higher to the Supreme Court? Do we go into a Florida state court and try to fight it there? And then on the flip side, the Seminole are asking themselves, based on what happens, when do we potentially want to pull the trigger on mobilizing sports betting a second time? Because they did launch sports betting in Florida only to have to pull it down when this court case um, went into effect. So what I'm hearing and understanding is that, you know, IGRA, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the Department of the Interior, they aren't allowed to do anything beyond what happens on the reservation. And what's in that compact as it relates to the reservation is fine and can exist. But if you want to challenge the rest of it, you need you need to talk to the state. And it's just unclear um, at that state level what then would potentially happen. Right. So we're, I guess, uh, and, and to put it bluntly or simply, we're not, we're not going to see the fan duels or DraftKings or BetMGMs there anytime soon. No. Uh, if you do see sports betting in Florida in the very near future, like 2023, early 24, you will be seeing Hard Rock and Hard Rock only. Um, you know, I, I'm still, I continue to be fascinated by Massachusetts, which, you know, you you covered, I think last time we had you on the show, we, we talked about it. And uh, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission seems to, they've seen to be very hands-on and, and all, aspects of the business. I think we talked the last time we had to Jess about the uh, about brand branding and, and putting age requirements on uh, the BetMGM logo at, at Fenway uh, Fenway Park on the on the Green Monster. And uh, we just had a change with executive directors uh, at the MGC. And uh, again, just because the state's so close to, to Canada and, and sports fans up here, you know, we, we follow the Bruins and the Patriots and the, and the Red Sox and and I think we there's a lot of Canadians that travel to Massachusetts in the in the summertime. What what kind of sticks out to you? What's going on there right now? Uh, it's a big period of flux for that regulatory body in particular. You mentioned Karen Wells has stepped down as executive director. Their general counsel Todd Grossman is stepping in as the interim executive director. 
What didn't get as much play is that Loretta Lilios, who is the executive or um, the director of the investigation, investigation and enforcement bureau, that's the group that looks at infractions like the bar stool can't lose parlay and gathers that kind of evidence. She's retiring in a matter of weeks as well. So you're at a point where you have a, as these states expand, they're having to both staff up, learn an entire new industry and help mobilize and launch that industry under some strict deadlines sometimes that for them, uh, they've got a lot on their plate and now they've suddenly got this kind of vacancy of executive people to step in and get that stuff done that uh, thankfully they have kind of mobilized what they need to mobilize in terms of launching sports betting that at least they got through that initial launch. But I think, you know, rolling out football season, it'll be interesting to see how much the fact that we're losing people at the MGC is going to impact how quickly things get done. Because I mean, think about it. We had those, that barstool hearing was, I think two months ago. And I think it was probably early May when they were talking about the retail infractions that occurred where they were taking collegiate bets on in-state programs. And we still don't have results from that. So if, you know, <laughs> that's a state that naturally takes a long time to come to conclusions about anything that I do kind of worry the backlog is going to get out of control as we are finding and replacing these people. Yeah. And you, you know, you make a good point too, Jess. And this is something I've talked to some people with that uh, might've been back at G2E last year about these commissions. A lot of times you have people that come in to fill these commission positions and they are newcomers to the gaming industry. And, um, as I learned very quickly, when we started the, the Gaming News Canada newsletter back in February 2021, it is a, a very complex, multifaceted industry. And I, I can't imagine there's any such thing as a quick learning curve if, if you're coming into this thing completely cold. No, and, and most of these positions, you're talking about someone who generally comes in with a law degree in order to pursue this because you have to be very aware of regulations and how regulations um are impacted. You know, I'll give a shout out to Steve Bittenbender. Uh, he had the scoop on this one that in Kentucky, apparently one of the people that we've named to oversee sports betting by the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission is a guy that comes from like the biometric world and has no information about sports betting at all. Coming into a commission that knows a little, but the, a commission that has been tried and true, a horse racing organization for the entirety of its existence. So it is tough in these states where there is an existing casino infrastructure in particular. Massachusetts has casinos, but they haven't been around that long. Uh, you have to learn a new industry and you don't really have necessarily that institutional knowledge of gambling to begin with. One more question on Massachusetts. And uh, what tweaked me, this was the story you wrote this uh, this morning for, for SBCAmericas.com on the latest uh, gaming numbers out of Massachusetts. And and drafting, obviously, there, there's some kind of a home court advantage there because they're, they're the leader in the market there. Um, better, uh, better. the uh, Joel Levy, Jake Paul company struggled a bit last month there. And uh, also, and, and we'll, we'll include this in the Thursday newsletter, you and Charlie Horner and the, the iGaming Daily podcast on SBC talked about better, which it's, you know, been in the news a lot uh, in 2023. And most recently going out and announcing that they've raised 35 million additional dollars in funding. And, and there's been a lot of hype around their micro betting product and, and their approach to responsible gambling. Uh, but maybe just if you don't mind talking to us for a couple of moments about, about better, not, not just in Massachusetts, but some of the, the wins that are swirling around the company these days. Sure. You know, I think everybody thought better was going to have this huge impact on the marketplace. And, Charlie and I speak about this on the iGaming Daily episode, that when you have a big name like Jake Paul, when you come in with this idea that you're going to have low customer acquisition costs because you have this huge pre-existing audience, these are the kinds of things you want to hear about in a, in a second mover challenger brand in sports betting. You know, huge grain of salt, as I said on our pod as well. We're talking about the limited information that we've seen from these revenue reports so far. In Massachusetts, Better went from 593000 in handle in May, which was, keep in mind, not a full month of operation because they didn't launch in May 
until the 11th, so 20 days. But then in its full first month of operation in the state, that number of handle dropped by half. And it was, you know, $291,000. It's highly unusual for somebody to launch in a market and just, you know, just by virtue of having 30 days, you should be able to outpace what you did in 20 days that I think that steep drop off was a bit jarring, uh, you know, after taxes, I think they made $11,000 in the state. You know, I, for those who don't know, our revenue reports really vary wildly state by state. Massachusetts gives us some information like handle by operator, revenue by operator, so on and so forth. So working off of that, uh, you see that they aren't making a ton of money. What we know from Ohio, though, is they give you how much they spend on promotional credit there. And what we're seeing from better on that side of things is that while everyone else has been largely dropping, dropping, dropping their acquisition spend in terms of promotions, theirs has remained kind of steady. And they've spent, you know, something like, I think it's like almost $800,000 in promotional credit, and they've only actually generated um, 300000 or so in revenue. So they are in the hole. They're a new operator. They're a startup. I'm sure, Steve, you, like me, have had to say a million times how much money DraftKings has lost in order to become one of the top two operators in the state. Losing money is somewhat par for the course for this. But, I mean, when the numbers are so small in terms of your revenue and they're not growing at all, I think there comes a point where you have to at least raise an eyebrow about whether this idea that you can acquire customers cheaply is really happening. And when you look at the promo spend and you're outspending your, your promos to your revenue and digging yourself into a hole. That's a, that's a great transition, Jess, to the last topic I want to knock around with you for a couple of minutes before we let, we let you go. And that's, um, you know, we're waiting this week in Tuesday's newsletter. I write about uh, iGaming Ontario and, and we're wait, we're waiting for the uh, uh, April to June quarterly numbers from, from iGo and, and, uh, conversations we we've had at conferences and and when i i talked to martha otten and mitch davidson at i go you know you know we talk about uh how much meat on the bone i go can apply to the numbers when they come out and and we've had we've had some operators say we'd like to see more transparency from from i go on these numbers and we've also had people tell us hey i go has to be careful here because you're in some case you're dealing with operators that are part of publicly traded companies and that information impacts the stock um i think part of the part of the motivation for those conversations has been that we do tend to see lots of information from states across the u.s uh, with their quarterly reports but i'd like you to, if you don't mind just explain how that works and as you said off camera it does vary state to state and i, I just wonder has has there been you know, it's kind of similar pressure applied by people like you who cover the gambling industry to to, to get more transparency and, and more information. To answer that last part first, none of us in the media have had any bearing whatsoever on getting more information out of any state than what they give us. To be honest, like you said, a lot goes into this regarding what kind of information they can and are willing to report. Uh, I fully remember when the first uh, quarterly report came out from Canada and just the collective, like, frustrated yell of all of us that cover Canada that three months of information was summed up in a screenshot that could fit in a tweet that was probably the size of a post-it. It was something like like nine collective numbers <laughs> across the whole thing. That's infuriating. Uh, there are states in the U.S. like this. Typically, those states are lottery states like Tennessee, um, Maryland. Actually, Maryland gives us decent stuff now. But, you know, those states that are lottery states that are used to, they disclose their information once a year. Um, they don't necessarily have to tell you exactly how much they make off of everything. They kind of have this attitude of like, it's not anybody's business how much we're making off of this. So, you know, you get what you get. Uh, plenty of states like Colorado, in addition to Tennessee, won't give us operator data where we are just given here's the bulk number for the month across all of these sports books. And we'll be happy to tell you how much people bet on ping pong, but we're not going to tell you where they bet it. 
it, it really just varies wildly depending on who you are. And it makes it tough to cover, you know, um, I love Ohio because I get promotional credit, even though I don't necessarily have to, because it's not being deducted from their adjusted gross revenue into the terms of what they're paying in taxes. They give you voided bets. They give you handle adjusted gross and gross gaming revenue and precisely what they're paying in taxes to the state. It makes it so much easier to understand and get a really good picture of what's going on in a state. But there are other states, I would say, because Canada or Ontario rather is quarterly, which we don't really have that in the U.S. There are very few that do quarterly. Most all are obligated to do monthly. Um, that you both have like a complete lack of information and you only get it four times a year is really exacerbating how difficult it is to understand how big the market is. I would love, I mean, again, I doubt they'd tell us, but like how much the lottery has just as like a, a percentage, you know, you don't have to give me operators, but help help us understand how much of this is the lottery product versus independent operators. I think to me, at least, that's the one that I would love to understand the best because we're all just reporting anecdotally that we know they're the biggest, but I couldn't tell you if they're the biggest in a 26% kind of way or a 54% kind of way. Yeah, we also mentioned that in the newsletter too uh, this week, Jess, that uh, we're still waiting for uh, the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation's 2021-22 annual report or 2022, 23. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's lottery report year. season. You yeah, know, late, for yeah, us, late. our fiscal year goes through, you know, end of July. So soon enough, we'll get it. But right. Yeah. It's, and I, I do wonder if, I do wonder, I think, you know, usually we, we see that report comes out in late June or the first couple of weeks of July. And I wonder if the online gaming uh, part of that is, you know, maybe the reason for the, the delay. But I, I tend to agree with you. I think, uh, and this kind of goes back to uh, a comment that was made by, uh, by I think, Andrew Darley from the OLG at the SBC Summit in New Jersey in the spring, that uh, if you include the OLG numbers with the rest of the operators in Ontario, um, Ontario might be the, might be the best. Uh, Biggest uh, in the country, right? or in North America. In North America and, and, and beyond. So uh, I think it is important to have that context. And, and there does seem to be a willingness between OLG and, and, and I go to, to, to work together. And again, I, in fairness to Martha Auden and Mitch Davis and Night Gaming Ontario, they, uh, they realize that, uh, that the information that they provided in, in year one, that they'd like to, they'd like to do more. And, that, and that's something they're trying to, uh, they're, they're working on to, you know, not to not accommodate the media necessarily, but uh, to, to provide more information to, to people who are participating or follow this, uh, this industry. So we'll see what, what happens with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a question too, like you can't report on the information and in, unless you have it too, that if we haven't seen what operators are required to disclose, it's hard to be judgmental about just how much they're giving or not giving you because I mean, there is not a jurisdiction in the United States with 70 operators to keep track of. That would be an incredibly difficult task at, at the monthly level to have to compute all of those numbers. There would be a team of four doing nothing but generating this report each month, you know? So I, I think to, I, I give the teensiest bit of slack to the fact that there is a huge number of operators in this space that trying to aggregate numbers that are reflective of every single person, it, it sounds a lot harder than maybe it is at first thought. Yeah. And there, the other mulligan I'll give I go is the fact that it is an organization that's not even two years old. And I think uh, Martha and, and Mitch and the staff there were so focused on getting this regulated industry up and running 15 months ago now that you kind of, you know, you put all your energy into doing that and then you say, okay, what's, what's next? And you, you almost like that's when you put together a to-do list and you start trying to tick off the boxes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Wellman is the editor-in-chief of SBC Americas. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Jess Wellman, W-E-L-M-A-N. Uh, Jess, always, always a pleasure uh, having a chance to chat. Really glad again we had some time. To, uh, to spend together at, uh, at the Canadian Gaming Summit last month. And, and hopefully our paths will cross again before the end of the year. 
Yes. And if so, you have to bring me coffee crisps because I only got one when I was in Toronto and I need more. Okay. I will, uh, I will uh, next on my next trip to uh, my next trip to the U S I'll, I'll make sure yeah, I if stop you come to G2E. Please. I'll, stop at a, I'll stop at a Costco en route to the Pearson Airport <laughs> and we'll, we'll, get you a, we'll get you a box of coffee crisps. Fantastic. Thanks, Great. Steve. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for listening to the Gaming News Canada show. Sign up for our newsletter at gamingnewscanada.ca. Follow Steve McAllister on LinkedIn to join the live audience. Message Steve if you're interested in being a sponsor or featured guest.